The next section we have is 2 verses 19 to 4, chapter 3. Yeah. So back in 1 verse 27, Paul encouraged the Philippians to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And here in this section, Paul is going to give three examples of people who live this kind of life and should be imitated. Timothy, Epaphroditus, and himself. In 2, 1, 19-24, Paul talks about Timothy. And he wants to send Timothy to the Philippians so he can hear some good news about how they're doing. Timothy is unlike anyone else around Paul, and he genuinely cares for the well-being of the Philippians. Um, Whereas there are a number of other people who are selfishly looking out for themselves. And so you guys will learn more about Timothy pretty soon, especially because next week you'll be looking at... um, both of Paul's letters written to him, actually. And so what we, one thing we know about him is that he often comes across as nervous and unsure of himself. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say Timothy is a good teacher or even that he is uh, you know, a devout or holy man. Paul says Timothy will genuinely care for you. That is Paul's standard for a Christian leader. It reminds me a lot of 1 Corinthians 13, where after talking about spiritual gifts, Paul says the more excellent way is love. That is what all else should flow out of. Love is more important than any gifting, which is why Paul commends Timothy to the Philippians for his Jesus-like character instead of his talents. Timothy is an example of humility to the Philippians, and Paul describes him here the way that Paul talked about humility back in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. He is concerned for the needs of those around him. Timothy is also an example of servanthood. And in 2, verse 22, Paul says Timothy served him like a son to his father in um, the work of the gospel. Timothy is is an example of the Christ him lived out. Timothy humbly puts others ahead of himself, and he is a servant for the church and the gospel. Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself to be born as a human and humbled himself again to death on a cross. Jesus didn't exploit his status of equality with God, but instead he sacrificially chose to serve God and serve others. The Philippians are meant to see and emulate Timothy's humility and servanthood, as an example of living a life worthy of the gospel. The second example Paul gives is of Epaphroditus. In 2 verses 25 to 30. Paul also wants to send him to the Philippians too. And when Epaphroditus was with Paul, he got super sick and he actually came close to death. But by God's mercy, it wasn't his time to go, and he got better. And so Paul is super excited to send him back to the Philippian church and wants to make sure that they give him a warm welcome when he comes, probably with this letter in hand. Epaphroditus is an example of sacrificial servanthood. Maybe the trip was really hard and he was persecuted on his way to reach Paul. Maybe he got a job in Rome to provide financially for what the Philippians' donation couldn't cover. Maybe he was doing ministry on Paul's behalf and was persecuted for that. We aren't really sure what the situation was or why Epaphroditus, um, yeah, how, you know, he was sick, he almost died, but how else did he risk his life? 
um, to make sure Paul had everything that he needed. So we aren't exactly sure what the situation was, but we do know Epaphroditus sacrificed much in order to serve Paul and work for Christ. He risked his life. And he is like Jesus in this way because Jesus, as God's suffering servant, gave the ultimate sacrifice of his very life. The Philippians are meant to see and emulate Epaphroditus' self-sacrificial servanthood. I also enjoy alliteration. It's a party. Um, You're supposed to see him as another example of living a life worthy of the gospel. The third example Paul gives is of himself in chapter 3, verses 1 to 16, and I see it in kind of three parts. First we see, first Paul talks about his status, he talks about his sacrifice, and then he talks about his response. In 3, verses 2 to 6, Paul gives a warning and then talks about his old status. He warns the Philippians either about Judaizers or Jewish missionaries, calls them dogs, evil workers, those who mutilate the flesh. This group of people are those who would consider themselves um, the circumcision, God's true covenant people. But Paul says, no, they actually are not. Instead, to this Gentile church, he says, we are the circumcision. Because what marks the true covenant people of Yahweh is worshiping in God's spirit, boasting in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh. That's what it means to be God's covenant people. But Paul had good reason to be confident in the flesh. And in fact, actually, he had more reason than anyone else um, who was a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He wasn't a proselyte. He hadn't converted to Judaism as an adult. He was Jew by blood, something his culture took great pride in. In regards to the law, he was a Pharisee. Zeal? He had it. He used to be a persecutor of the church. Want to talk about righteousness under the law? Paul was blameless. He was as kosher as they came. Paul would have stacked up pretty nicely in in competition. He could have felt really good about himself. And before Jesus, it does seem like he took pride in his status. We know from Acts 22, verse 3, that he was the student of Gamaliel. I don't know how you say his name. Um, And Gamaliel holds a reputation in um, the Mishnah, which is a Jewish holy text, of being one of the greatest teachers. No, it's a commentary. Sorry. Um, Anyways, Gamaliel is held to be one of the greatest teachers in all of Judaism. And in the Talmud, it says this about him. Since Rabbi Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and piety died out at the same time. Had Paul continued on his trajectory as a student of Gamaliel, he likely would have gone on to be one of the most influential Jews. From a Jewish perspective, he had it all. And even from a non-Jewish perspective, he would have had respect. But then come verses 3, 7 to 11, one of the most powerful paragraphs in this book. There's a big contrast here, and I found it helpful to visualize it. Um, So what Paul does is he sets up this huge contrast, things that are lost and things that are a gain. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. 
More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Seeing it visually laid out like this with the contrast helped me think about it. Um, yeah, because what he's doing here is, you know, Christ is on the side of ultimate gain and value and everything else is on the other side. Jesus actually had a really similar teaching in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 to 33. He said that, you know, following him will be costly. It will be costly in possessions and relationships. And he teaches in other places that it can even cost you your life. Jesus says that you must count this cost before following him. Paul knows that Jesus is the single most important thing. Nothing on earth compares to knowing him. And that's his point here in Philippians 3, verses 17, 7 to 11. Um, I found this really funny, but we actually have a four-letter word that would be a better translation of the word Paul uses to describe everything compared to Jesus. Um, but I can't say that in a Bible teaching. That's how strongly he feels about this. I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it's not just a bookish knowing about, but this is talking about a deep knowing on a personal level. This is being in a deeply personal relationship with Jesus. Status, prestige, possessions, relationships, time, and even your biggest hopes, dreams, and desires of your heart, whatever it may be, it is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. There's no cost that you can pay in following him that won't be made up a million times over in this life and in the resurrection to come. In reality, we lose nothing because what we gain is so far beyond what we have given up or could ever be called to give up. Are you willing to sacrifice all that you have, count it all as lost just to know Jesus better? Are you willing to sacrifice time at the beach with friends to work harder on your charts and press in? Are you willing to spend late nights in the prayer room sacrificing sleep, just seeking his face? What is the biggest dream and desire of your heart? Would you be willing to lay it down if it meant you gained the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, more deeply? These are the questions that we need to answer um, when we come to this paragraph in Philippians 3, 7 to 11. Um, before we move on to the next paragraph, um, it, I do need to mention that 3, verse 11 is a difficult passage, and you need to interpret this in your um, charts as well. So verses 10, 3 to 11 say, I want to know, I'll just put it all up here, okay. Okay. Um, say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Some have seen this as Paul being unsure of his salvation and therefore unsure of his resurrection. But that is unlikely because of chapters like Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. So what is Paul actually talking about? The word translated resurrection in verse 10 is the normal word in the New Testament. And I do not speak ancient Greek, but it's anastasis. Um, is that where your name is from, Anna? No? Okay. Right. Um, I thought about that as I was typing this Greek word. I'm like, hmm, Anna, I wonder. Um, anyways, that's the normal word used in the New Testament for resurrection. What? <laughs> um, but the word translated as resurrection in 3 verse 11 is a word only used once in the New Testament. Aisha. How do you spell that? I not see it. A-N-A... S-T-A-S-I-S. Anastasis. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. And so the word transla- in verse 11 for resurrection is only used once in the New Testament. Ex-anastasis. As you can tell, it's the same word, just with an added prefix that scholars translate as out-resurrection. There are some... and Okay, so... Yeah, out-resurrection, ex-anastasis. And the different perspectives on this is that there are some who believe this will be a separation in heaven between believers, um, with some being rewarded more highly than others based on how they lived in this life. Others believe it is the resurrection talked about in Revelation 20, verse 5. Um, And others think it's talking about something more spiritual, that the out-resurrection refers to the attainment of Christ-like character in this life. I take either that last interpretation, because it seems to fit better in the context of the paragraph that follows, or that Paul's just simply using another word for resurrection, and I have no idea what's going on, because it's Paul's brain. Who really knows? Um, True. Mm. Okay, so in 3 verses 12 to 16... Um, Yeah, we see Paul's response. So Paul sacrificed his status and he left it behind in order to know Jesus more. In order to know Jesus. And so here we see his response in light of the sacrifice that he has made. And verse 3 verse 12 is one of my favorite verses. Um, It's awesome. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he says he hasn't already obtained this. The this he's talking about is the ex-anastasis from verse 11. And so whatever interpretation you choose for that verse, you need to carry it through contextually in this paragraph. Yeah. Um, He also says he hasn't already reached the goal. In the NRSV, we have a footnote that says this phrase could also be translated as already been made perfect. And so these, noticing these two things were helpful for me to... Um, understand this verse and also interpret 3 verse 11. Okay. So Paul has not already obtained these things, but he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. There's, it's not like a pun, but it's sort of like a wordplay in the Greek here. Um, He uses the same word for make it my own and also made me his own. It's the same word there. Um, 
Paul's pursuit of holiness and a Christ-like character, or the resurrection to come, isn't Paul striving after it, trying to do something that will make God be pleased with him, maybe give him a better reward in heaven. Um, Yeah. Oh, that was... Yeah, no, I should not have said that. I don't believe that's what it is. Um, Sorry. I recant. Paul's not striving after Christ-like character um, in his own strength. He's... Jesus has grasped a hold of him, and what Paul does now is simply respond in love to that firm hand on the shoulder. He repeats his response again in verses 13 and 14. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. He repeats this idea of pressing on towards the goal. This is his response to the sacrifice that he has made, a pressing on, a continual and steadfast pursuit of knowing Jesus, becoming more like him, and not stopping until he reaches the finish line. Apparently, there were um, some people, though, who... Yeah, there were some people who agreed with Paul's perspective here and others who didn't. But Paul says that he's, he's confident God will redirect and guide people who believe differently to the truth. Even though Paul said that he hasn't attained it, implying that the Philippians probably haven't, haven't attained it either, he implores them to hold fast to what they have already attained. Paul is an example of humility. He had status and honor and respect in the eyes of the world, but he gave that up seeing it as trash. He didn't keep anything that gave him status or advantage, but he emptied himself of all that privilege. He is like Jesus in this way because Jesus had equality with God, but he didn't exploit it for self-advantage, but instead humbled himself in obedience to the Father. Paul is also an example of steadfastness to Jesus. The Philippians are meant to see and emulate Paul's example of humility and steadfastness as another example of living a life worthy of the gospel. And then in chapter 3, verses 17 through 4, verse 3, Paul brings this example section to a close. Summarizing it by inviting the Philippians to imitate himself. Yeah, so he invites the Philippians to imitate himself and to watch others who live like the examples um, that he just gave. And then in verses 18 and 19, he takes two verses aside to describe people who aren't living lives worthy of the gospel and instead live as enemies of the cross. And we see Paul is literally heartbroken over people who have chosen to live this way. Three Huh? Yes. I think it might be. I People really disagree on who exactly he's talking about here. Is he talking about opposition? Is he talking about Judaizers? Is he talking about... Um, but you're totally free to take that interpretation. So explore it. So 3.19 says, Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. This is what he says about that group of people. And in contrast to the people whose minds are on earthly things, he says, 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here is referencing how Philippi was a Roman colony, and many people there had Roman citizenship and swore allegiance to the emperor, who was called Kyrios and Soter, Lord and Savior. Paul reminds the Philippians that they belong to a higher, a more important, and a more enduring kingdom than the empire they belonged to here on earth. Although Roman citizens, they are most importantly citizens of heaven, and this is the reason why they are to live their lives worthy of the gospel. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Does it mean that we just wait here, bide our time, until we are brought up to heaven to live there at last where we truly belong? Well, if someone in Philippi said, we are citizens of Rome, they, don't, they wouldn't mean we are citizens of Rome and we are super stoked about going to live in Rome, day, in Rome one day. Being a colony, having Roman citizenship, when you didn't live in that city meant something different. The last thing that emperors wanted was a bunch of colonists coming back to Rome. The task of the Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece in order to expand Roman influence where they were. Right now, the church is a colony of heaven. And part of our call is to bring the life and rule of heaven on earth. That is what we ask for in the Lord's Prayer, and it is how we are meant to live. Jesus granted us the privilege of being citizens of heaven when he won the war 2,000 years ago. And to all those who place their faith in him, he has given benefits to this citizenship. Forgiveness of sins, redemption from slavery to sin, reconciliation back to God, adoption as one of God's children, the gift of God's spirit inside us, abundant life here and now, and the future hope of eternal life in a resurrected body in the new earth. King Jesus gives those things to the citizens of heaven, the citizens of God's kingdom. The emperor of Rome gave Philippi citizenship in order to extend Roman culture in that place. And likewise, King Jesus has given citizenship to those faithful to him in order that they would extend his kingdom wherever they are. Another aspect of citizenship is that the Roman citizens of Philippi could trust that if they were ever in trouble, the emperor would send help. Likewise, being a citizen of heaven means that you can trust your Lord and Savior will return to save you. That's what Paul is talking about at the end of verse 20 and 21. And together they read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Citizens of heaven can trust that their Savior Jesus is coming and he will transform them when at last he puts everything under his reign and his rule. Paul then wraps it up and says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. Therefore, in light of everything that I've just talked about, that we are citizens of heaven, my example of steadfastness and humility, Epaphroditus' example of self-sacrificial love, Timothy's example of selflessness and humility, and first and foremost, Jesus' example. Therefore, 
Stand firm in the Lord in this way. Stand firm living a life worthy of the gospel as you have seen us doing and as Jesus first did. Paul closes out the main body of the letter um, from 127 to 43, which was his main point to the Philippians. The reasons why scholars believe 4, 2 to 3 wraps this part up um, before he transitions into the end is because here he gives the same command he did in 127 and 28, which was to steadfastness and unity. The difference here is that he's directing it to two specific women. These women, Euodia and Syntyche, could have been in some form of leadership in the church, which is why Paul addresses their problem directly. 